This is Brent. And this is Amanda. We are the Unreliable Narrators. Here to talk about the strangeness, the mystery, and the wonder of Gene Wolfe's prose. What is time? What is memory? What is a person? Is this reality? Where are we? Do we exist? Have you ever considered that all your choices are what have brought you right here to this very moment? Episode 8, Meditations on Middle-Earth, St. Martin's Press, November 2001. Well, Amanda, this book, we were talking about it before before we recorded this a few weeks ago, and I made the joke that this is what made me comfortable with the fact that the Library of Alexandria was burned to the ground. So It was a good joke. Yeah. I feel a little harsh saying that, but hopefully we can come to terms with why I think that. So I guess one thing that we should note here is that we both read this book out of the hardcover edition by the one that you mentioned with St. Martin's Press. Yes. There's a few items in the front that I'd like to kind of go over. One, it is dedicated to Paul Anderson. Yes. And he died four months before the volume was published. So he lived from 1926 to 2001. And he has an essay included in the collection. Yeah. And then there is a note on the cover page that says it's a Byron Price. And he also passed away a few years after this book was published in 05 and somewhat of a controversial figure in science fiction fandom because of editing issues over a comic called Empire with Samuel R. Delaney. And then also he published a real life treasure hunt book where it was poems and clues. And he went around the U.S. and hid little caches everywhere. And then if you found them based off clues and then there are paintings, you could take the key that was inside the little cache to him and he would give you an actual gemstone that was cut and worth about $1,000. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so he had that going on, and it's been years, and most of them still haven't been found. Okay. And he died without recording. Oh, where, no. Yeah. With, so, and no provision for this to be carried on. Yeah, so his family looked at the estate. There were no papers or anything. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Right before the pandemic hit, though, apparently some people found another one of them and the okay. family honored the uh, Okay, continue. honored the commitment. Yeah, so but he was a controversial figure. Right. I'm not entirely sure what his involvement in this book was. I couldn't find a whole lot, but His name is on it, but his involvement is unclear. Yeah. Okay. So, and so there's that. So while this is called Meditations on Middle-earth, it's really more of a collection of essays that are very subjective. Yes. And as an anthology, it's very uneven. Yes, and does not seem to have a strong unifying principle other than mentioning Tolkien. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. I guess I'll just front load this before we get too deep into it. There's several things that come up in repetition. Yes. That I felt like a better editor could have handled. But the number of times that we had to hear about the pirated paperbacks. Yes. Not every essay mentioned them, but many of them did. And then, so the issue around that is that the U.S. Uh, Loophole in U.S. copyright law. Yeah. So they ended up importing books printed in Great Britain 
and people who were foreigners were unfamiliar with U.S. copyright law, which was rather unique at the time where the book had to be printed in the U.S. with appropriate copyright notice. And because they started selling the ones printed in Great Britain without a proper copyright notice, Ace Books made the claim that legally they fell in the public domain. So that's why they printed tons of paperbacks and didn't pay the Tolkien family. Right. And then there's also Gary Gygax comes up several times. So he created Dungeons and Dragons. He was sued by the Tolkien estate for copyright infringement. I've never really played Dungeons and Dragons. Have you, Amanda? I have not. Okay. Well, so now we're now <laughs> speaking on things we may not be as clear on. I, I know little to nothing other than I knew kids that got in trouble for it when I was young. Yeah. So the result of the intellectual property dispute, because they used Hobbit and it became Halfling and Dungeons and Dragons, they used Ents. Oh, really? Yeah. And so that became uh, Treant. Okay. And then they had also used uh, Balrog. And oh, that became okay. uh, Baylor. Okay. So in the Dungeons and Dragons games, like with the guidebooks that they published, the result was as the names became genericized. Right. And then there is also, I guess, a, another thing that comes up is the kind of the publishing history and the work that Tolkien did. But that's somewhat less interesting. But it's a reoccurring theme that right. I feel uses a lot of page space. Yeah, the publication of Adult Fantasy by Ballantine and all of the books that then became available because of the way Lord of the Rings created this appetite. That came up in many of the essays. Yeah. So I guess my kind of long rambling intro, one of the reasons we wanted to talk about this is this is the anthology that was going to publish his best introduction to the mountains in. Yes. He ended up not publishing it in this anthology, and our interest was piqued because of that. Well, it seemed very surprising that an essay as good as his best introduction to the mountains wasn't included in the anthology that it was intended for. And so we were curious, well, what was included? Yeah. If you don't have Gene Wolfe, what do you have? As a co-host of a very neutral podcast on the subject of Gene Wolfe, yes, I agree yes, with very, you Yes, yes, very neutral. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that kind of, I guess, is the intro there where kind of the nitty gritty out of the way. So what was your overall, how many times did you read this? Okay, so I read the collection twice. Oh, okay. Once when I first got it, when I first ordered it. And in, in the context of preparing for recording the episode on the best introduction to the mountains. And then I reread it again this past week just to put some notes down and refresh my memory about what was in it. So I read it twice, Okay. which I think that qualifies as having put perhaps more effort into it than it deserved. But hopefully I remembered some details. Yeah, I ended up reading it twice and okay. uh, kind of did a little refresher to kind of a third gloss over. Oh, okay. So this wasn't a competition, but I guess it just became one because you're winning. Well, I wouldn't count the, the third. The third one was where I went through my highlighted notes. Oh, so okay. <laughs> so at the end, I do have some questions for you. Okay. Um, at the end? Yes. Okay. Because one, I'd like to go over some of the essays and get your impressions and probably feelings on 
how... I have feelings. (laughs) I can share them. Yeah, well, I have feelings about it too. Can we just start with the preface? Yeah. Okay, so the preface is by the editor. Karen Haber. Karen Haber. Someone I knew nothing about until Mm -hmm. picking up this anthology. And I'm just struck by what an odd choice it is. If someone wanted an anthology of essays on Tolkien, why would they choose Haber to edit it? And if this was her idea, why would she choose to do this? Her disdain drips from the page. What? Well, I can't even imagine someone who seemed less interested in editing an anthology of essays about Tolkien writing about Tolkien. It seems to think that um, (laughs) Tolkien is silly. Mm -hmm. She has uh, scornful words for a college roommate who went by the name of Arwen. And, you know, having met a few people that got a little too into the cosplay, pointy ears thing, Mm -hmm. when the movies were coming out, I can understand a sense of frustration with somebody over-identifying with a character. I mean, if you're going to call yourself by a character's name, Arwen's aiming fairly high, I think. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. She praises Harvard Lampoon's Board of the Rings, then she praises Tolkien. Yeah. Yeah, dismisses Tolkien as silly, and yet calls Leonard Nimoy sacred for playing Spock in Star Trek. And along that, because she calls out his bravest little hobbit of them all, uh, Jingle or Diddley, that he somewhat regrettably, while I enjoy that, I enjoy it ironically. Yes. To the point that I think it's come back around to, it's wormed its way in, and I have not. It's now sincere. Yeah, now it's sincere. (laughs) But the title of her preface, the beat goes on. So when she's talking about Leonard Nimoy's singing, she compares him to Cher. Oh, wow. Yes. Yes. And as I was reading this, a question came in my, why did she choose the beat goes on? Like, I get it, but it seems a very time-bound thing. So I did some research, and Sonny and Cher's song, The Beat Goes On, that came out in 67, when Haber would have been 12 years old. Oh. And then I found a website, sharescholar.com. Wel- <laughs> Wait, what? Welcome to the modern world we've created. Sharescholar.com. Yeah. Okay. Well, because I had questions about the etymology of that phrase. Yes. And as I was going down that rabbit hole, I found somebody else who had already asked that question, like, what's the etymology okay. of the beat goes on? And what it amounts to, when he went through all of the lyrics, because the phrase comes up a lot in lyrics and in poems and then advertising to the point that he could trace it in Google Scholar, where now we have dissertations and articles published in journals with The Beat Goes On, pinpointed it to this song, the Sonny and Cher song, The Beat Goes On. That just struck me as very odd because at the end of the day, Maybe I'm wrong, but I believe that Tolkien is going to have much more staying power, not only in the Anglo sphere, but also like in world culture. And yes, granted, Cher did a music video that she danced around on the same battleship that the the USS Missouri. I think my grandfather died. My grandfather was in the Navy and he died still very angry with her about that. (laughs) Yes. So they, yes. and that's the, uh, the, if I could turn back time music video. Yes. 
people may not be aware of this, but when that was released, that caused a stink in the U.S. military. Very much so. Yeah. And so they changed the requirements that you would have to... uh, In order to film something on... Yeah. Yeah. So to me, it seems very odd that she's hitting like, oh, the beat goes on. And it's like you're viewing Tolkien through a very pop culture-y reference. Right. Which is very much the tone of her preface altogether. She's seeing him as a pop culture phenomenon that she's over. She's too mature for it. It's very childish to her. Hobbits and elves are, yeah, they don't matter. And that she's going to age out of it. Yeah. You know, I graduated from high school and was done with Hobbits and even Star Trek, (laughs) which the implicit comparison there is just absurd to me to think that, you know, the, the TV show, I mean, Star Trek, thoughtful, interesting. We could probably, you know, have a decent podcast episode about <laughs> about certain Star Trek episodes and themes. But considering Star Trek as inherently more serious or mature than The Lord of the Rings, I don't know, just no mythic imagination whatsoever. Yeah. And again, I'm just brought back to the question, why did she edit this if she is so above Tolkien and has grown beyond him? I'm not sure. There's a half quote here that I think may shed some light on it because she talks about how people came along after Tolkien and wrote similar things and went in different directions. And at the end, she says, and even funny tales. Right. And I think that that is probably one of the keys to her preface is that she's more of a comedic writer Mm -hmm. because I was not very familiar with Haber until we picked this book up. Right. I went through her list of published works and selected some short stories at random. Every one of them that I read, it's intended, I say intended, to be humorous. None of the humor really landed with me. There's one where my husband turned into a zombie and it saved our marriage. Wait, that's the title? That is literally the title. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. And it's an anthology that takes place inside of a tabloid world. So the name of the anthology is Aliens Pregnant by Elvis. Okay. And so that kind of tells you... This is the humorous conceit. Yeah. Okay. And so it's a very over-the-top, tongue-in-cheek anthology. And it didn't land for me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the difficulties is humor is. If you're caught too much in the flow of your culture, humor doesn't translate very well. Yeah, I'm glad you brought humor up because that's... I feel a little guilty about this, that I'm so negative on this because she's so dismissive and I'm probably just being very serious about something that she was very lighthearted about. And so if this is all, you know, lighthearted, humorous, fun, and I just didn't get the joke, then I guess egg on my face. But I mean, I had the experience of way back in the day when I was going to say before Facebook was evil, but maybe just before (laughs) I realized Facebook was evil. And I shared a video. I can't remember the origin of it, but it's gone around. The purported text conversation between Tolkien and Lewis, where basically Lewis asks him what he thought of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And then you have the animation of writing, not writing, writing, not writing. (laughs) And Lewis is like, wait, you didn't like it? And he's like, well, I didn't like the allegory. And (laughs) Lewis goes, that was all of it. (laughs) And then Tolkien replies, you know, I I dislike allegory in all its forms. 
Mm-hmm. And then the, the Lewis text replies, oh, yeah, so your works don't have any allegory in them. There's just no symbolism whatsoever and goes on to list symbolic things, you know, nothing to do with industrialization, nothing to do with the Great War. And then Tolkien's final reply is, I still don't like your magic Jesus lion, which is <laughs> hilarious. But I offended a mutual friend oh. who was very was indignant that Tolkien and Lewis would never have treated each other like that. And I didn't understand how wonderful the books were. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. These are the next best thing to sacred texts for me. (laughs) I just still find this humorous. And so if I'm just outside of Haber's stream, then again, that's on me. But it just didn't land for me. I just Well, it's on me, too, because none of it landed. For me, and I went out and I. Well, yeah, tried you to... you tried to discover if you could enjoy her fiction as well. Yeah, so you did bring up Star Trek. Well, no, Haber brought up Star Trek. Well, Haber brought up Star Trek, <laughs> and how sexy Leonard Nimoy is, which is yeah. I was a little uncomfortable. But... Yeah, let's not. Let's not. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> no, she went on to write some Star Trek novels. Yes, and then one of the other things, she is involved more in the visual medium of science fiction as an art critic of science fiction in either paintings or comics or in film and TV. So added to the humor aspect of it, I think she may be separated from, I don't know what I want to say here, but like the textual aspect. Yeah, not as much a literary appreciation as a visual aesthetic. Yeah, I think that that may be another part in there where she may just be an ill fit for a writer who was not entirely because Tolkien did write. He did illustrate his writings, but mostly and I would say primarily his works are a text based work. Well, yeah, they started as invented languages. So the word is far more important, although his maps and illustrations are lovely and a component of the world he created. They're not the dominant characteristic. I had one other complaint to make about the preface before we move on. Oh, okay. Let's hear um, it. And that was that she called Harry Potter Tolkien's direct descendant, and I'm indignant about that. Mm, yeah, that one kind of rubbed me the wrong way, too. Well, I think it's pretty obvious that, well, I say I think it's pretty obvious. Everyone who's anyone would agree <laughs> that Harry Potter is descended from Tom Brown's school days. It's very much a school story in the old British style. Yeah. And it was Le Guin that invented the wizard goes to school trope or the wizard goes to school novel in her Wizard of Earthsea. So Harry Potter's the bastard child of Tom Brown and Ursula K. Le Guin. Well, as an American, she may have not been familiar with those schoolboy genre books is okay. kind of what I'm guessing. Yeah, and that's a possibility. And I probably wouldn't have been alerted to that connection except for one of Harold Bloom's comments on Harry Potter. Because yeah. I wasn't in the Harry Potter fandom. Neither was never, I. Never I, had I, been. It, I missed it. Like, right, I was just at the wrong age. Well, I was at the wrong age and growing up in a world where I wasn't supposed to read anything with magic in it. But you know, somehow I found my way into wolf <laughs> fandom anyway. So that's all that I have to say about the preface. Any comments on George R. R. Martin's introduction? The only, I'm going to say something that may sound kind of catty, but I don't mean it as catty. But a lot of these essays it left very little impression on me. 
Forgettable. Yeah, forgettable. And I found that a little bit surprising because I've like Martin's blog, I've read a few of his blog posts. And what I read of his, I thought, I was like, oh, that's a insightful and more gracious than I would have thought that he was capable of. So I won't forgive him for claiming that Jamie Lannister could have taken Aragorn in a 1v1 sword fight. <laughs> I found the introduction forgettable. My notes say general and inoffensive. It's just very generic. Yeah, I think the strongest part of the introduction was the opening line where it says fantasy existed long before Tolkien. And that's the punch there. So. Yeah, pretty much. What about the second essay, Our Grandfather? Yeah, I thought that was an interesting take. I didn't have a lot of commentary on it, just that it seemed to be making a distinction that seemed very important to Feist, but didn't really land for me. So Yeah, and so that was Raymond Feist that wrote that one. I should have said that when I asked you the question. That's okay. <laughs> but uh, his interpretation of Tolkien was filtered more through D&D, and that informed his writing, which, once again, it not something I'm interested in, and it kind of, it didn't really inspire me to want to read his works. Right. That might be a way of evaluating some of these essays. Do any of them send you back to that author interested in what they have to say? On the whole, the statistics are not in favor of the collection. No. How about Awakening the Elves by Paul Anderson? Well, so I had never read any Paul Anderson and also didn't know that it was pronounced Paul. I thought it was pronounced Paul because... Well, I'm not it, sure. Well, on some of his works, it is P-O-L. Oh. Okay. And then on some of them, it's P-O-U-L, but then it's also P-A-U-L. Okay, so, so it's not my fault that I didn't know that. No. Okay, I was intrigued by his essay. There was you know, factual detail in there that I was interested in. His hmm. narration of his role in the Ace paperback settlement was interesting to me. Yeah. I don't know what percentage of responsibility he has, but just, you know, authorally, that sense of loyalty to an author's rights seemed, you know, it, it was a good thing to do. And it was an interesting aspect of the story to narrate. If that had been the only thing we'd heard about Ace Paperbacks and Ballantine books, then that would have been enough. Yeah. I've read some of his works. Okay. The one that stands out the most to me is I think it's High Crusade, could be wrong here, but it's about an alien spaceship that lands in medieval Europe as these group of knights are getting ready to go to the Holy Land on one of the crusades. I can't remember. It probably doesn't even say which one it is, but they end up attacking the spaceship and taking it over. And then they go off and have adventures out in... In space, knights in space. Yeah, it's knights in space. And they end up taking over the empire of the aliens that attacked Earth. Through a series of comical, like, wood doesn't show up on radar, and just that, like, their armor reflects the lasers, just things along those lines. Right. So that's the one I remember the most. But I actually got a little more respect, esteem for him, because in my mind, he'd been kind of a popular, humorous, pulpy-type okay. yarn spinner. Well, and I think that that was my impression just from seeing his books in used bookstores. Yeah. So that makes sense. So, but he has a quote here. I think I have the same quote. Oh, okay. Well, go I'll, I'll go first. It's, yeah. Some is profound. Some is utter delight. Some, frankly, leaves me a little cold. This merely shows that Tolkien's work ranges more widely than my mind, and I needn't bore you with the specifics. I loved that. Yeah. That seems to me the responsible 
assessment of an author or of a person encountering someone great mm-hmm. that there's stuff here I don't like, but I think that's a limitation in me. Yeah. And then at the end, he specifically called out that scholars recognize Beowulf as a scholars, including him, have found that Beowulf is not a pagan tale with monkish glosses, but profoundly Christian from start to finish. Even though set in an earlier era, nine-fingered Frodo can stand side by side with Grindel's Bane. I also had that one quoted. Oh, did you? Yes. No, it's wonderful. It was a great section there where it talks about the Christian aesthetic. And I was delighted by that. Yeah. And the fact that he recognized that and called that out in Tolkien's work, I thought was a Something that I'm probably going to go back and try to find some more of his works to read mm-hmm. to kind of get it. I want to read this crusade one now that you've described it to me. <laughs> All right. Swanwick. Swanwick's, I don't like it left very little impression on me. I thought he had some good points about how Lord of the Rings changes as you age when you come back to it. Yes. But I wasn't entirely sure there was a whole essay there. I felt like he had the idea of an essay, but he didn't develop it. So he talks about how it changes, but he doesn't unpack why it does that or the ways that those effects are accomplished, the depth and complexity of the work that allows you to encounter it with different appreciation at different ages. He seemed very wrapped up in how it informed his parenting, but again, did not explicate how that was happening. This is a book that's very important to me. Reading it to my son, I realized it was very different. It affected me deeply. Okay, but you need to open that up a little bit so we understand how it affected you. I can have a moving experience, tell you I've had a moving experience, but if I can't explain it or describe it in a way that it also moves you, it's like retelling my own dream. Yeah. He had one quote at the end, and I think he should have opened with it where he was He said that you can't read Lord of the Rings like it's just another version of an Aesop's fable and tack a moral onto it. I loved that. Yeah. I think he should have opened with that and then gone from there. Yeah. And then he maybe would have been able to develop a stronger essay from that. So let's see. What do we have next here? I don't know. Oh, if you give a girl a hobbit. Did you have any thoughts on that one, Amanda? Well, I suppose I could try to come up with one or two in the moment. Okay. Yeah, I have a few thoughts. I have a lot of thoughts, actually. Um, <laughs> I'm, this was the one that almost made me throw the book across the room. If you know me at all, you know that I care about books as objects. Typically, even if it's not a book I particularly like, I, I'm hesitant to damage or destroy it. But Yes, listeners, this is a true statement. I can confirm. Yes, you would know a thing or two. Anyway, Esther Freisner, her essay, If You Give a Girl a Hobbit, angered me deeply. Please don't tell me that it's your favorite. Well, let's see. What do I have written down? This one essay almost single-handedly turns this collection from mostly forgettable into downright trash. Huh. Apparently, I agree with you. Oh, okay. (laughs) So much like we said with Swanwick's essay, we had an experience reading this. If we can't describe it in such a way that you understand, then you should probably just stop listening to the podcast now. Anyway, (laughs) humorous tone and committed to a bit Mm -hmm. and entirely missing it for me. I was angered by the nature of the humor. She's committed to this bit that mainstream culture is normative 
Mm-hmm. And the expectations of mainstream culture are normative. And therefore, if I do anything outside of that, it's inherently hilarious that a woman would make a choice outside of the mainstream. And again, like there are cultural tensions that exist. <laughs> People have to deal with navigating cultural expectations. I'm not denying that cultural expectations are a thing. It was not funny. It was labored and frustrating. And I believe she quotes from Seventeen Magazine more than she quotes from Tolkien. Yeah, Seventeen Magazine is a normative standard for life. And again, I get that she's going for the humor here, but it does seem that on some level she really believed it is legitimate to follow the advice in Seventeen that she's not telling on herself, I was so foolish as to think that Seventeen's advice was worthwhile. It was... Mm -hmm. I'm just so glad 17 gave me permission to be myself, which is not being yourself. You're just doing what 17 told you to do. Yeah. Yeah. So she was introduced to The Lord of the Rings because 17 magazine included a review of it, I guess. I did not look that up. I feel like I should have done that research, but then I probably would have had to take four showers. Yeah. I I didn't want to go to the library and request an old article from 17 magazine. So. Yeah. So her whole essay is, I desperately needed to grow up and find a husband. That was my responsibility. You understand this was before women's liberation. That means that's what I had to do. And again, like not saying those cultural expectations don't exist. I was expected to grow up and find a husband and settle down and have babies and not have any other ambitions. And I'm a bit younger, I think, than (laughs) Esther Freisner. Not so young anymore, though. But again, it's just it's not funny No. To be like, I was doing the thing I was supposed to be doing. And then when somebody, a respected authority on getting a guy, told me it was okay to read this, then I could read it. And then maybe I'd feel like it was justified even if a boy saw me. Yeah. Well, and then she doesn't talk about if she enjoyed reading it or not. No, 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 no. It's just Legolas was hot. Yeah. And... It's been a little while since I've read Lord of the Rings. I don't think Legolas is actually described in any physical detail. No. Okay. I mean, he's described as an elf with dark hair and light of foot. Yeah. So she's imposing a lot. Oh, for sure. You would think that she was introduced to Lord of the Rings via the movies. Although, of course, this essay is written before the movies have been made. Mm -hmm. Like, the attractiveness of Legolas is not anything that gets... It gets, it gets no page time. Yeah. And he's not the love interest of anyone. So there's not even a character implicitly recognizing attractiveness. You know, the great romance of The Lord of the Rings <laughs> is friendship, not romance. <laughs> the friends we found along the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Well, and then that gets moved into like Spock and Legolas get merged together. She talks about how... The second essay in a very short anthology that talks about how hot uh, Leonard Nimoy and Spock. Which confuses me profoundly. I mean, there's no accounting for taste, but... It's the eyebrows. Sure, that's it. (laughs) And the pointy ears. The pointy ears. I don't know. Is that a characteristic that I missed that I was supposed to be paying attention to? I don't know. I I don't know either. Yeah, the, the, the dominant theme of her essay is... I am so brave and daring to do something against conventional norms, but at the same time, affirming those cultural norms and expectations. See, I like fantasy. 
but I still managed to get married. I dared to do dangerous things like writing fantasy stories, even ones that are supposed to be funny. Look at me. I'm so scandalous. And it's just boring and frustrating. Yeah. I I felt that this one was very out of place. Yes. So I don't know if this feeds into out of placeness, but Haber and Freisner collaborated on anthologies and works before. Right. Does it feel like a publication credit it, favor? Yes, it does. It feels okay. a little nepotistic. Yeah. Well, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but to me, the whole thing stinks of... I'm not like other girls, <laughs> and it's just not. That's not interesting. Yeah, I'm a little jealous that you summarized it with that joke before <laughs> I did. So. Sorry. No, nope, <laughs> you, that's good. You, you shared the quotes earlier that I'd already written down, so now we're even. Yeah. Anything else you wanted to say about that one stinker? No, I think I summed it up pretty so, well. Okay. Harry Turtle Doves, The Ring and I, any comments? Just that his central point, the tension between commerce and love, it stands that Tolkien wrote so well, at least partly apart from being, you know, a certifiable genius, because he wrote purely for the love of the thing, and that commerce was a very secondary or tertiary consideration, and that that is part of the difficulty of writing for money, is the tension between yeah. um, economy and affection. Yep. Well, you summarize that there. I haven't read much Turtle Dove, but what about Cult Classic by Terry Pratchett? Well, I like Terry Pratchett. Okay. I haven't read a great deal of him, and I think that so he's... So you're not totally humor-impaired. I'm not. Okay. He's hilarious and insightful. So I don't want a Terry Pratchett super often. I think it's like a very sweet dessert. I occasionally mm. have a craving for something, but he has such wit. He's so clever and so witty. And his stories tend to be dealing with very rich and complex themes while being playful and hilarious. Mm -hmm. So I like Terry Pratchett quite a bit. And I enjoyed his essay, partly because he points out the literary establishment can't seem to get over the fact that Tolkien is popular, even though he doesn't fit in with defined literary taste. Yeah. And all I can say is that history is in the process of agreeing with Pratchett and disagreeing with the literary establishment. Yeah. Also, Pratchett wrote in Tolkien-Austin mashup. Oh, gosh. And apparently it never saw the light of day, which I'm very sad about. And whoever is in charge of the Pratchett estate needs to find the Tolkien-Austin mashup story he wrote. I don't care how terrible it is. It's two of the things that I love. <laughs> two of my top five all-time favorite authors. I think I would love to read that. Please. Hmm. Pretty please. Yeah. Maybe a listener will know. <laughs> so what about A Bar and a Quest by Robin Hobb? I think that the most interesting part of that is that she read The Lord of the Rings while sitting in an Alaskan meat cache because it was the only place she could get time quiet and alone. Yeah, that's my exact same note, too. Really? It just, it was not a striking, it was like, I love Tolkien, this is, I was delighted by this, that's, yeah. Tolkien. Yes, okay. uh, Rhythmic Pattern in Lord of the Rings, an essay by Ursula K. Le Guin. Did you have any thoughts about this one? Well, it doesn't fit in with the rest of the collection. Really? Yeah. Why would you say that? Because it is outstanding. But it's Le Guin, so I'm not surprised. Yeah, I think that this is the strongest essay 
in the collection. So I agree with you on that one. And it's Ursula K. Le Guin. So. Yeah. I mean, I could rhapsodize. It's a very technical essay, probably not one, you know, where themes or ideas are, are super important. She's getting at, you know, the craft of writing that mm-hmm. Tolkien was so good at. And she's analyzing the rhythms of the story. And she moves from the very precise and small, the syllabic rhythm of lines and yeah. explains for anyone who didn't have the privilege of a really high quality liberal arts education, how to scan lines and identify stressed and unstressed syllables and how to identify the difference between poetic diction and prose diction. And then she moves from that to analysis of the rhythm of scenes Mm -hmm. and the rhythm of the books as a whole, the, the tension and release of the whole narrative. And it's lovely. It's a well-constructed essay. It moves from the small to the large to the small in a nice pattern. And her identification of the details of Tolkien's craft indicate that she herself is a master. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I think I meant to look up which letter this was from Tolkien, but I feel she was very much informed by it because Tolkien has a letter where he had uh, wrote Theoden's speech in a modern style. And he's like, no, I could do this if I wanted to, but that's not what I'm attempting to do. Right. And I feel like she was taking what he was saying there and explaining it in a way that was accessible to people who, like you said, may have not had a modern literary education. So, Right. And I think that what she does for the reader of her essay is illuminate what it is about Tolkien that is so different than so many of his imitators, what skill yes. he has, what you're tasting when you're reading his prose. And when I first read Le Guin, it was because someone brought me a copy of A Wizard of Earthsea and said, this is a writer who has a literary grasp of prose, but writes fantasy. And that was my introduction. Yeah. And so her prose is so elegant and so well composed. And then she gives us that insight into Tolkien is doing all of these things and he's doing them very carefully, very masterfully very deliberately and you're being carried along on this and you don't realize it. You think it's hobbits or elves or the quest narrative or orcs or, you know, Mm -hmm. the terror of Sauron. You think it's all of these things, but it's not. It's the quality of the prose. Yeah. And just to call out something that you did, you said it's with the tension and release. Going back to Haber with her beat goes on with the Sonny and Cher song. That just goes to show you one way that you can draw out the same theme and one way that you shouldn't draw it. (laughs) You shouldn't draw it out with the beat goes on, but using technical terms like tension and release, that makes much more sense. Well, and also just thematically, sorry, I'm done a rabbit hole now. You have to (laughs) pull me out eventually. Beat goes on implies a steady rhythmic drumming Mm -hmm. and... Sorry, drums, just, just drums like in the deep. In Moria. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the beat goes on, indicates that that steady rhythmic drumming, like the drums, drums in the deep. Mm-hmm. But what Tolkien is doing is alternating these rhythms in a complex and interwoven pattern. You don't have something that's a simple pop song that has a simple backbeat. You're talking about something that has 
all kinds of different modes that are interweaving with one another so that they're sometimes harmonizing, sometimes somewhat dissonant, and all of those patterns are carrying you along. You know, there are times when, okay, I read The Lord of the Rings once a year, every year, because (laughs) I'm a nerd. But there are times when I'm reading The Lord of the Rings and I just can't put it down because I'm caught in one of those patterns. I'm caught in the ratcheting tension of just an unbearable hope or an unbearable fear, even though you know what happens. (laughs) And then there are times where it's, this is obviously the place to set the book down. Yeah. And that even through dozens of rereadings, that still is strong enough, powerful enough. So- Le Guin did a good job of identifying that. She did an excellent job of explaining it. She illustrated it very well, and it's a lovely essay. I agree. Okay. I can add nothing to that summary. All right. Um, I'll stop fangirling over Ursula Le Guin over here, and we can move on. Eh, there's worse people to fangirl. <laughs> okay. The Longest Sunday. Yeah. That one was kind of interesting, the idea of being stuck for a whole day between you know, two volumes of a book that you want to read. I get that tension. I'm not sure that the narrative of it captured me. I felt kind of sad about this boring suburban life that she's narrating. I feel like there might be something else going on behind the scenes there that made life harder than she was admitting to. Yeah. Because we already have one of those in here. Yeah. We'll get to that. Yeah. But then I did love that she identified the crocus the Alpen crocus, and that it throws a sport every dozen or so, I think is what she said, of a yellow flower instead of a white flower. And she suspects that that's Tolkien's Eleanor. And then she uses that as a way into talking about how a really good book contaminates the real world mm-hmm. so yeah. that your whole mental framework is shaped by it. And that is, well, so much of our shared experience of enjoying the same books and then being able to refer to a character or identify something in this world yeah. as being this thing in an imaginative universe and the the richness of association there. I appreciated that. Yeah. So now back to the spot that I skipped. Yes. <laughs> Douglas Anderson's Tolkien after all these years. I didn't have any comments on this one, did you? Not much. I have a few lines. One is that... In The Best Introduction to the Mountains, Gene Wolfe's essay, Douglas Anderson is the person he consulted for deciphering Tolkien's handwriting on the letter that Tolkien wrote him. And so they obviously had some communication. From what I understand of Tolkien's studies, which I've I've read quite a bit, um, Anderson's work here, I mean, this is just a very competent, basic overview for somebody who's maybe not as familiar with Tolkien's publication history and his life and work. And so I have no complaints about it. It's, yeah. it's a little dry, but it would be effective introductory material for somebody who was unfamiliar. Okay. Well, now that you did, I was going to talk a little bit more at the end about that because that was my impression too, because he should have maybe done the intro work. Yes. And when I looked up his publishing history, 30 of the items that he has, they're either introductions or prefaces to works. So I think that's kind of his strong suit, um, introducing authors and works to people who aren't as familiar with it so they can get in. So it seemed odd to me that he was here in the middle. And as an essay, it also kind of stands out as being much different than the others. Yeah, it's, it's higher quality, but it's also just very different in tone from most of them. 
If you'd put Le Guin, Anderson, and Wolf together in a collection with maybe one or two more of these, it would have been much stronger, though slimmer volume. Yeah. How Tolkien means Orson Scott Card. Well, this is an interesting one. And in fact, you're asking me, but I really want to hear your thoughts. We've had more than one conversation about Orson Scott Card, and maybe we shouldn't be too elusive because listeners won't be familiar with all of the commentary we've had over the years of reading Card for book club and discussing him. But what are your thoughts? So my summary of Card is usually he starts a series with very good ideas and characters, and then you should only read the first or the first and the second book out of the series, because then he wobbles off into all sorts of other things. I think that tendency holds true for this essay. I do too. Okay. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Good summary of that characteristic of his, that he has a good idea and then he can't sustain it. Yeah. And the other thing too is I called out a quote here and then also something about his background about not sustaining it. So let's see. He says, this is not allegory. It is honesty. It is Tolkien telling the truth, not by plan, but because this is what felt right and true to him as he was making the thousand unconscious decisions that a writer makes on every page of every story. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, one, I think he's correct. I've had a theory about Card for a number of years now where I think what he writes is reverse portal fantasy. Because he's Mormon or LDS. And I think to understand Card's work, you need to understand that usually when you're starting out, it's, I'm using air quotes here, the real world. And then the weirder it gets and the longer a series goes on, the more informed by Mormon theology it is. Yes. And I guess to clarify here, for people who aren't as familiar with Mormon theology, so while there's commonalities with evangelical Christianity and Catholicism, there's actually quite a bit of distinctives. Like there's no creation ex nihilo from nothing. In Mormonism, there are intelligences and intelligences are eternal. So they've always existed. So, and there's no first cause. There's actually many causes that are eternal. There's not what we would commonly call spirit. Mormons are materialists. And so what usually they would call spirits refined matter. And I think all those things come through in his storytelling. It's more informed. And I believe that this quote takes that more informed by Mormon theology and kind of. Right. This is a self-diagnosis of his own fiction. Yeah. And which probably for him is part of what succeeds in his fiction. Yeah. And for us anyway, I don't know about other readers. That's part of why his fiction tends to fail for me is because I just. I'm not interested yeah. in the universe that he ends up creating, although I'm usually fascinated by his ideas. Yeah. You know, Seventh Son, an excellent beginning yes. for a series, an excellent novel. I just, I very much enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And then by Crystal City, I was ready to throw the book across the room. Yeah. Well, and I feel the same with, uh, so Ender's Game, and then actually I believe Speaker for the Dead is the- The better? The better one, at least. Agreed. Yeah speaks to me more. But then as the series goes on, which there's a number of ones past. Right. Speaker the, for the Dead, Xenocide. Yeah. And then, Children of the Mind. Yeah. To me, it just all falls off the rails after yes. Speaker for the Dead. So, yeah. But anyway, 
Well, I did appreciate his assessment or his articulation of how Tolkien rejected allegory. And he contextualizes it in the cult of modernism. And I think that his description of that is is interesting and well-argued. Yeah. You know, he's rejecting that decoding that happens in the <laughs> literary establishment. And, you know, having been in many a literature class that, oh, I, I can decode the symbol and then mm-hmm. accept or reject the author based on how it's being used. Or I can identify an ism and then, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. So I, I thought it started out pretty strong. I liked how he described Ulysses as a long, tedious joke that gets worse the more you have to explain it, which is the only way to understand it. Yeah. And then he calls Lord of the Rings a swift river of meaning, and I thought that was a good evocative phrase. Yeah. Also, he thinks that Shelob is innocent. Hmm. I did not write down a note on that. Yeah, that she's just pursuing her own end. I'm shaking my head dramatically, saying card, card, card. I'd be curious to know if his opinion has changed on that. Me too. Let's see. The Tale Goes Ever On by Charles Delent. Um, I didn't have any yeah, quotes from this one. It's there just... was another note of that, the cool kids thing that comes from Haber and Freisner, although, or Freisner, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. I don't um, know. I think I said it both ways. And <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> if she's mad, she can call us. But kind of flipped here, where discovering Tolkien before your friends did what makes you cool, like, mm-hmm. you know, but equating discovering Tolkien to listening to the Beatles for the first time. So it just, yeah. Yeah. Another one, Mythmaker I, by Lisa Goldstein. I didn't have anything. I felt like Le Guin said everything better. Okay. This next one, the radical distinction. I do not know why the Hildebrandt brothers were interviewed. I don't either. It was a boring interview. It was boring, and they seemed to be more about promoting some of their other works. Yes. Although this might connect back to Haber's role as an art critic. You know, they're talking about the visual choices that they made in illustrations. And I actually, I like their illustrations. Their illustrations are quite well done. Mm -hmm. I just, their conversation about their illustrations was not (laughs) as interesting. It wasn't. As a side note here, Greg, he later illustrated cover art for Omni magazine and Wolf's War Beneath the Tree was published in Omni. And so I was I was like, oh, did he? So it was December 79. However, that was before Greg started working for Omni and it was actually the Ege who did the cover art that okay. December. So. so it would have been a cool connection and yet it was not. And yet it wasn't. And the reason everybody had to hear about it because I did the work and didn't want to. <laughs> Go nowhere. Yeah. And then the last essay, um, any? Well, this one, it's child abuse. Yeah. And it was the disparity between the joking of the introduction. Yes. And then the, oh, I was reading Tolkien hidden in basements and in rooms that caring adults let me go to to get away from the child abuse. The disparity between those two kind of left a little bit of a bitter taste in my mouth. One, I was just angry that it happened. And two, Haber makes a joke about dating a guy who could be a Balrog. Yeah. And then doesn't do anything with it or filter any of her emotions or how any of this helped her. And then we end on 
Terry Windlings. Yeah, in the world, my stepfather had nothing, but at home he could rule as a king, and the one measure of manhood that he had left lay in his fists. My brothers and I didn't need Hitler's bombs to understand how Sauron came to be. We didn't need the Third Reich to make us feel helpless as hobbits. Ah! Yeah. Ow! On one hand, I'm glad that she wrote that, in, and it was accepted, but on the other hand, it's... It does not fit the humor tone that I feel like Haber was going for. So, Right. To me, it connected with C.S. Lewis's explanation of why fairy stories were not, you know, wish fulfillment. Yeah. And in a way, they're not escapist, although in another way, of course, they are. It's, you know, we know evil exists. Kids know. Yeah. You're not going to be terrified by a dragon or by a Balrog, or maybe they will be terrified by a Balrog. And he was very adamant that you shouldn't create fears carelessly. But the fact of the matter is, terrifying stuff exists. Mm -hmm. At least let them hear about heroes. Yeah. And this clearly, yeah. So there is the end of the collection. collection. So I have what I've termed constructive questions that I would like to ask you. Oh, excellent. Okay. I do have one observation about Wolf before we go on. And uh, I think that this collection of essays illuminates something that Wolf was very good at doing, namely presenting what he was writing about his own personal experiences in such a way that even though he's talking about himself, he's not actually talking about himself. And he's drawing out and pointing to things that are common to the human experience. And I think that he does it so seamlessly that most of the time you're not even aware that it's happening. Yes. But when you see other people try to do it, mm -hmm. like it kind of clunks. Right. So we have a whole collection of essays here, the majority of which, not all of which, but the majority of which are singing the me, 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 me song. <laughs> yep. And then you don't get anything out of it. You know, yeah. They're enjoying their memories. And sometimes I feel like they're, aggrandizing themselves. They're trying to bolster their own self-image. See, I have these interesting connections with Tolkien. Mm -hmm. And what's obvious in this collection is that anyone who could have been invited has at least as interesting, but possibly a more interesting connection with Tolkien than you do. So narrating your personal experience is very rarely going to mean anything. And if it does mean something, it's only going to mean something because you and Tolkien connected over something beyond the two of you. And so Paul Anderson, you know, advocating for copyright justice, that makes sense. And in Wolf's essay, which isn't in the collection, he wrote a letter to Tolkien and got an interesting answer and then moved from that to talk about the implications here. And mm -hmm. I just, yeah, I want it to mean something beyond the, I shook hands with a celebrity. Aren't I cool? Yeah, it's kind of the Instagram feed feeling. Right, and there's a layer of absurdity to it because we can all pick these books up and read them and have our first encounter with Tolkien, which if you haven't read The Lord of the Rings, please go do. And you're going to have a story that's at least as interesting as half of these or more interesting than half of these stories. Yeah. Because Tolkien's more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I agree totally. So constructive questions and a little groundwork. So first question. How familiar were you with these authors before you read their essays? Um, that's very uneven. So with Le Guin, very familiar. Mm -hmm. I've read most of her work and some of it several times. 
Card, somewhat familiar, because yeah. I've read quite a few of his novels. Pratchett, somewhat familiar, but that's it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, for me, Le Guin, Card, Anderson, and then I like a few others I've come across, maybe in short story collections and that right. type of thing, but that's... If I may confess, I haven't actually read any Pratchett. Oh, that's okay. So yeah. I was going to have, like, a, given a three-tier ranking system, with one being top and three being bottom tier, and then just assuming that they all start out in the middle, like, we'll just consider apathy, like, tier two. How would you rank them? I would say there's probably, oh, dear. There's one, and that's Le Guin. Okay. And then there are a handful of twos where they're fine. I don't have a problem with them. And that would probably be Terry Windling. Maybe that's mostly pity. I'm not sure. <laughs> Douglas Anderson, maybe the first third of Card, Pratchett. They're good. They're fine. Yeah, they they're serviceable. Anything, yes, they don't say anything you know, revolutionary or challenging or inspiring, but they're inoffensive. And I could see how they could be interesting to someone that's maybe somewhat less familiar with the source material. I have the disadvantage of over-familiarity. Yeah. And then, I don't know, how far down does the scale go? Well, it only went to three, but okay. I feel like I need to add a... Well, so down at 11, we have... <laughs> this one goes down to 11. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say the Freisner... And the introduction by Haber I just utterly frustrating. Yes. I reject them. Completely. I find both of them very frustrating, too. And then based off these essays, were there any authors that went up or down in your estimation? Well, I think Card actually ticked up slightly because, again, I've read quite a few of his novels and I tend to just be, okay, he has some good ideas, but then he goes off the rails. But there was a level of self-analysis and awareness in there yeah. that... I was somewhat surprised by, and I enjoyed his analysis. So it's not just, you know, the relationship between his fiction and his critique, but also just the way he talked about Tolkien. I had increased respect for him. And I can't say about anyone else because I'm not familiar with the rest of the, or I wasn't familiar with the rest yeah. of the authors before uh, Paul starting. Anderson went up, in my estimation, right. just from those quotes that I called out alone. Well, I'm now interested in reading Paul Anderson based on, well, partly your description of this you know, <laughs> crusade novel, and partly because I thought that his essay was, it was pretty good. Yeah. So. so what would you do to fix this anthology? Well, like traveling back in time? Yeah. So assuming you were asked to do this and you were the editor, and let's just say that this is your baseline here to work with, what are some things that you would do? I would reorder the essays. Okay. Whatever it took to get Wolf's essay included in the collection. <laughs> I would probably cut at least one or two. Yeah. So I would cut the Esther Freisner one and probably one or two more of the bland ones. And if the interview seemed unnecessary. Yes. And then I would probably be on the hunt for someone else to contribute something interesting. Mm -hmm. But I would, send, I, I would send a couple of these essays back and ask for them to be revised. Like your suggestion about starting, I can't remember which one it was, but starting with the Douglas Anderson. Yeah. Oh, and then there's also one where you said, let me look for it. Sorry. Oh, Swanwick's. I would have asked him to revise starting like you described. Yeah. And then, yeah. So I don't know how much you can do not having editorial experience. I imagine it's a bit of a delicate thing where you have to offer correction and advice. And I don't know if this was at all financially remunerative, 
But <laughs> if you're not paying very much, you can't ask very much. So. Well, yeah, there is that. But I had some thoughts on it. Once yeah. again, as somebody who has never edited an anthology, so right, you know, I could just. But you know, you know, sail in here on your wings and <laughs> yeah, and. and what would you do different? As a co-host of one of the top five Jimmy Wolf podcasts. <laughs> top five. Yeah. We're making it, baby. So I would move Douglas Anderson's essay as an introduction. Yes. Because it has all the trappings. There's bibliographic details. Mm -hmm. He has a survey of previously published literature. He has a history of influences. The work is more scholarly, and it's very out of place. It feels like a little a sliver where it's right. at in there. I would also ask him to expand it and all the stuff around copyright and pirated. Right. Just stuff. get that dealt with in that context. Yes. I would, yeah. I would move it to a more scholarly context so that way we didn't have possibly contradictory narrations of what actually happened with the copyright treaties and that type of stuff. Right. And so I would just get all that stuff out of the way in an introduction, like maybe a section two. So if somebody was interested, they could read it. And once all that repetitive material was out of the way, then we could actually get to distilled thoughts. Mm -hmm. I would remove the Hildebrandt brothers. Oh, yeah. That I, interview. Yeah. I don't think that that added anything because now we're talking about Plato. He didn't like art because you're making images of images of image. I felt like this was one of those. Oh, yes. One of those types of things. We're not dealing with the text, but we're dealing with interpretation of the text where they very clearly say, well, yeah, this isn't what Tolkien wrote, but this is what I wanted to draw. Right. And I don't know how much that adds. And I would cut the Haber and Bresner and a couple of the others, and I don't know. It seems like there would be some more authors that would want to like, yeah. chime in. You would think that there would be more contributions, yeah, or more possible contributions. But also, if you're putting together an anthology, I don't know how much you could flex on that, it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I have another book that I haven't read, so <laughs> it's called After the King, and it's a collection of stories in honor of J.R.R. Tolkien. Oh, okay. And I would think that you might have done better asking some of these authors to write a short story in honor of Tolkien and working with a mix of fiction and nonfiction that yeah. way. No, that's a good point. So, okay. Any well, other big questions? No, that was my main one. Overall, I was rather disappointed with this anthology. I was excited yeah. when we tracked down which anthology this Wolf article was going to be in. And then I was like, oh boy, we get to read the original anthology. And overall, I mostly left with a bitter taste in my mouth. Me too. And I'm not the only one that was disappointed in it. Interzone Magazine ran a review of Meditations on Middle-Earth in the issue after they ran Gene Wolfe's essay. Okay. And I don't know, it was pretty great. I, I actually kind of felt like the review, other than I had a few quibbles with how he parsed the quality of the essays, mm -hmm. but I felt like we could have, instead of recording this podcast, we could have probably just read the review from oh. Interzone. <laughs> well, good thing you and... waited till the end to mention that. <laughs> I know. Well, so I think it's in 175, or I think it's in Interzone 175, if you want to look it up. But it was an interesting review because it basically said, I don't understand what the point of this is. 
most of these essays are completely forgettable. They're not very interesting. The most interesting essay was the Gene Wolfe essay, but we ran it in our magazine, which did seem like a little bit of an editorial flex there. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not the only ones that were disappointed in it. And our early assessment of it was it seemed like it was a publication cash grab to coincide with the release of the movies. And I don't know, maybe they made their money on it. Well, hopefully not. (laughs) Well, I just don't want to see any more of them. Well, yeah, we don't want to financially reward irresponsible publishing behavior. Yeah. All right. Well, the unreliable narrators are Amanda Patchen and Brent Tell. And as Gene Wolfe said, time turns our lies into truths. Jesus.